0: forward slash phishing test now NoBefore before wants to thank you for listening to the show and i want to thank them for sponsoring it they are the provider of the world's largest security awareness and simulated phishing platform be sure to take advantage of their free phishing test which you can find at nobefore.com forward slash phishing test think NoBefore before for your security training from the cyber Hub bunker in studio You're listening to the CISO Talk Podcast. No sales, no bullshit, just straight talk. Straight talk. And now for your host and CISO, James Azar. Hey, CISO land, welcome to the CISO Talk Podcast. That's a brand new intro. Patrick, you got to break in my brand new intro to the podcast. I loved it. Right? No sales, no bullshit. Straight talk. Joining me today is one of my dearest friends, like a person I absolutely adore, the executive director of the NTSC, the National Technology Security Coalition. They do the job that none of us want to do, which is go talk to elected officials about cybersecurity policy. Patrick, welcome back. It's been a while.
1: It has. It has. And uh, thank you for inviting me to be here today. It has been far too long, James.
0: It, it, it has been, but, you know, this year has been crazy, obviously, with a lot of stuff going on. So, um, you know, for a lot of our audience, they may have not heard of the NTSC. So while I know the NTSC and love the NTSC, would you just share a little bit about uh, what the NTSC does?
1: Sure. Um, we're, uh, we're about to enter our fifth year. Uh, I tell people that the abbreviated narrative on the NTSC is our goal is to be the voice of the chief information security officer on Capitol Hill. Um, our mission is to bring the, uh, the voice of the practitioner to the Hill. Um, if you've ever been to a hearing on Capitol Hill, um, there are a lot of people sit hearing the SVP of Symantec, McAfee, VMware, IBM Security, all incredibly smart and, and bright people uh, but none of them are Kevin McKenzie uh, at Dollar Tree defending 22,000 stores across the nation day in and day out. So our goal is to bring that voice, that voice of the practitioner to the legislative uh, leaders so that they, they understand that the, uh, what's, when they're looking at legislation, they understand how it might impact a practitioner because ultimately the CISO is the person who typically has to deal with cybersecurity legislation.
0: And the CISO is the person who has to deal with the back end of that. One of the things I remember when I was on the board is we always talked about data breach notification laws,
1: right? It, and, and that remains our number one priority. Um, I'm uh, We've been working this year, uh, just recently, with Senator Portman out of Ohio, and he has a bill which uh, we think will be dropped on the floor soon. Uh, As soon as we get through uh, the current environment, uh, and I'm not talking about COVID, I'm talking about the elections, and we get on the other side of that, um, it is a, it's a bill to create a national data breach notification uh, mandate um, that would preempt all the existing state legislation, um, and that uh, is shaped similar to the, uh, the, the Ohio State um cyber legislation and of course uh senator portman comes from ohio so that would make sense Um, but fundamentally it says that if you're an enterprise and you're following a prescribed set of security measures whether it's nist or uh, iso or or any of the recognized cyber standards and you get breached then um, you have a defense against any action that might be taken against you So it encourages companies to adhere to cybersecurity standards, uh, which provides them a defense if they get breached, as long as you're not guilty of any, you know, egregious, um, you know, malfeasance you, you haven't uh, failed to patch for six months, something that you should have patched. Um, But as long as that's aside, uh, then uh, we, we like this legislation. We put together a group of uh, folks from our policy council, you know, you know, James, we have a group of uh, people that um, are governmental affairs uh, executives from our board members and several cyber lawyers. So some folks from that group and some, some CISOs came together and we've been uh, working with the senator staff to, uh, to on the language. I think we've gone through three iterations, I think we're in the final draft. And uh, I think that bill is going to be dropped very soon. And, uh, and good, the good Lord knows we need it because this patch will uh, quilt a uh, work of uh, what, 50 uh, state, uh, you know, with South Dakota and uh, South Carolina uh, going in in 2019, we now have 50 states plus um, I think four of the six territories. So, um, you know, it's, it's needed.
0: Yeah, that always seems to be something where, um, in your, um, uh, uh, sorry, in your uh, incident response plan, right? Y- you have the legal part of it, and in that legal piece of it, you have all different fifty states and what the requirements are for every single state and every single territory. If you work in those territories, it's it's um, it's quite a challenge,
1: and and you have to constantly update those requirements because those state legislation, state legislation doesn't remain static. You know, one day uh, Safe Harbor looks like this. And then the next year Safe Harbor looks like that, you know, and and, um, you have to constantly be aware of the changes. So compliance is important. And while I would not say that compliance, I think people who say compliance doesn't equal security are wrong. Uh, because uh, study after study shows that compliant firms are breached much less than non-compliant firms. But, um, you know, compliance is costly and uh, it's an administrative burden when you have to do it across 50 states and four territories. You know, uh, many of my CISOs will tell you that uh, set the security bar as high as you want, but give us one place to file, which will uh, reduce their costs from an administrative standpoint. And uh, and with Senator Portman's bill, it would uh, encourage companies to adhere to a level of security measure that doesn't exist today.
0: So would you be under Senator Portman's bill, would you be reporting to like the FTC or the. Yes. Okay. Yeah, we we,
1: we uh, and, and it's similar to um, we recently released a, a privacy framework document, which uh, we've been advertising uh, through uh, LinkedIn. Um, and we're going to be talking a lot more about it in the, in the new year because that's the other, you know, that's like our second highest priority right. privacy legislation getting ahead of that. Um, but we laid out a, a set of, uh, like seven guidelines that said, you know, here's some things that we need in order to, for the NTSC in our community to back a bill. And we support the FTC, um, within parameters, um, You know, we're not enthusiastic about them having additional rulemaking authority. Um, The other thing that um, we're we're encouraging folks to do is look at, like with the the Children's Protection Act, COPA, you know, um, state attorney generals can uh, enforce the legislation. So what's to stop uh, state attorney generals from being the ones who would enforce federal legislation? We already do it with COPA. Uh, so we've been having that conversation as well. Uh, but yeah, the FTC for now, uh, no private right to action and, uh, preemption of all current existing state legislation. Those are the things that we support. So
0: when we look at Senator Portman's bill, how is, you know, with everything going on, this being an election season as well. Um, but, but obviously, you know, um, I remember 2017 and 18 when we were on the Hill, um, cyber was still. Uh, I remember in one of our uh, meetings. I think it was 2018. Uh, we were meeting with one of our elected officials, and as people around the room were introducing themselves as CISOs, he stopped and asked, "What's a CISO?" Um, is, 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 is is that still the case?
1: You know, um, we were we were chatting about this just before we started this conversation. You know. We, we, we're going to lose a, a, a couple, two or three, really cyber savvy uh, legislators this year. Will Hurd is 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 leaving um, from Texas, and Tom Graves from from Georgia, um, and uh, there are some other ones uh, who are who are you know in in tough elections. There are um, there are you know a group of uh, folks in the House and Senate, you know Mike McCall, Jim Langevin. Um, Ted Lou uh, from California. There, there are some folks that, that really understand cyber. Um, and and uh, Benny Thompson from, you know, Mississippi is the chair of the House Committee on, uh, you know, Homeland Security. Um, but, um, you know, it, it's not as deep and as wide as we would like it to be. And so part of our mission is to continue to educate legislators and again, educate them on the impact of legislation. So you you talk about you know um, you know California Consumer Privacy Act and you know some of the uh, collateral damage that 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 bill has done uh, in terms of you know um, enforcing it and you know it's now fully enforced. Um, it, it, I, I you know I, I don't want to be uh, too forward, but I mean if you think about. Uh, GDPR and how long it took to put that together, you know, 10, 12 years to put that legislation together. And then you look at CCPA, it took, what, 10 or 12 days to put together. Um, it, it clearly has some challenges, which which people are trying to overcome. Um, I think the intentions are honorable, but you know, our, our goal is to try and get people to understand that you have to be really thoughtful about this legislation because the impact it can have on American businesses can be pretty dramatic.
0: Yeah, that's um, that's a very interesting piece. I was um, part of a um, a discussion in the EU on GDPR and how GDPR is viewed internationally as a privacy law, and. Um, one of the people on there was a um, an Austrian enforcer of GDPR. Um, and we were sitting on the same panel and he was talking about how it it helps businesses um, more. It gives citizens the rights to their data. And so I asked him pre-GDPR to name me one business where if I reached out and asked them to delete my data, they wouldn't do it.
1: and what did he say
0: deafening silence i go show me a place show me a company that said you know to you patrick when you called them or you emailed them or you wrote them and you said hey i want you to delete all my profile data where they said no we're not doing it most organizations who were socially responsible did that already now, you can say a handful didn't do it, but we don't legislate based on a handful of bad actors. We legislate based on setting some sort of industry standard on privacy. And we see that with self-regulation in, in a lot of the new and upcoming um, industries and technologies. We see that with AI. We see that with machine learning, kind of companies trying to self-regulate its usage and the way they, they program it and the way they use it and the way that data can be used. And so... Privacy to me has a has a very interesting th- um, point because I think data breach notification the way Senator Portman's bills were in and I saw when when you guys released the first draft of it I haven't seen the the third or four or the third reiteration of the bill but I saw the first one because um, um, I think Kevin sent it to me um, right and so um, and I read it and I was like well this is really good I mean you can literally slap privacy on top of this. And, and add in the data breach notification that um, as part of data breach notification, any customer has the right to ask an organization to delete their data, and you would be you would need a privacy law because you've just addressed it. Um, most privacy laws like GDPR, and, and that was a consensus, by the way, with several lawyers on the panel that I did in Europe, in Brussels, um, virtually, of course, because of COVID, but we, we all, a lot of us saw it as, as almost a... Uh, um, Um, a way to, um, to take away from small businesses and entrepreneurs from starting new businesses because of GDPR compliance. So it targeted big tech, but you're taxing big tech. That's all this is. Google, Facebook. I mean, I was speaking to them off the record with representatives from those big companies in Europe. And off the record, they told me, Pat, that they were just like, yeah, we just calculated as part of our budget. It's just a part of it's a cost of doing business. We know that we're going to have to pay the French fifty million euros this year, and we're going to have to pay the Germans uh, seventy-five million euros, and we're going to have to pay the Irish nothing because the Irish don't do that. Um, <laughs> and and we're going to pay all these different countries, but they go predominantly. We're worried about the countries with a negative uh, budget surplus because they're coming to make up for that surplus through this privacy law, and. Right. And uh, there's a very interesting YouTube video out there of a, of a privacy advocate in Germany. Um, the video's in German, so I had someone translate it for me. But he's walking around the streets and asking people, do they feel like they have more control over their data thanks to GDPR? And they all said, no, because there's not one company in Germany that didn't delete my data when I asked
1: them to pre-GDPR. So yeah, what I, has GDPR I, really given you? Yeah, I, I, I think... You know, I think always. You know, and, you know, I lived in Europe for fourteen years. Right, and um, you know, I, I, I the, the you know the uh, the regulations in Europe have always been tighter around privacy than they have been in this country, um, and um, you know, it, even when I worked with a startup over there, I remember, uh, it, you know, we 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 had to make sure that um, you know certain data. You know, remained within servers within certain countries, and they couldn't be taken out of the you know out of the country. And um, you know, there were a lot of interesting regulations. Uh, and then you know, we just had Privacy Shield go to hell in a handbasket, right. uh, which which you know adds additional complication. But you know, I, I'm I'm comfortable with the idea that uh, we need privacy regulation in this country. I just think we need to think about yeah you know, the three biggest issues that constantly come up. And, and they are a political divide. There's, you know, no sense arguing about that. We have uh, preemption and, and there are two, notification. Right, so that, you know, on the on the left, um, totally opposed to preemption on the right, totally supporting it. We have enforcement and everybody agrees the FTC should be the enforcer. But, you know, um, the question is, how much power are you going to give the FTC? Uh, And there have been some bills which blew, you know, blow the FTC up to a 500 member, you know, 500 new team members and two thirds of them are lawyers or, you know. um, Yeah, the FTC is the right place to do it. It's just just be thoughtful about how we do it. And then um, and if you don't think that's important, just ask the former CEO of LabMD. Uh, you know, I, I've um, got
0: Mike's book right behind me. I've had Mike on the podcast before too. We, we we've had yeah. that conversation plenty of times. And,
1: and then finally, the the, the third issue, um, let's see it's it's preemption, it's enforcement, it's private right to action, and and what we say on private right to action, what we the NTSC say <clears throat> is that, you know, the focus should be on real harm, and real risk to privacy. And um, if that is, um, I'm not sure I'm kind of showing up as a blurry right-hand side. No, no,
0: you're fine. On, on, on okay. my end of the, uh, on, on my production board, we're, we're straight. That's just the. Uh, okay. I'm trying internet. in the right quarter. Yeah. So
1: those are three issues. Preemption. Um, enforcement. Enforcement and private right to action. And, and, you know, there is a political divide on each one of those issues. So, um, you know, we, I'm we,
0: surprised. By the way, I'm surprised on the right to preempt being that the left is for like, you know one one side. You know, the side that's for preempt that's a that's for preemption is the right, which typically you know are really big on state rights. Like, don't have the federal government, um, you know, in, 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 infringe on state rights. Like, let the states run their own show. And then that being kind of that that's a very surprising kind of well, divide I've, there.
1: Realize that every and, and and I understand this, every state attorney general in the United States thinks that they he or she is the best person to judge, you know, how, how to evaluate this privacy of, of their, you know, the members the citizens, of their state. Right. Yeah, their citizens. I get it. It makes sense. But look, here 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 we ha- we have 50 different pieces of legislation on national on data breach notification. And trust me, uh, you know, with with any major breach, and I'm not going to mention any companies, but with any major breach, and we know who they are, um, folks in certain states are more protected than folks in other states, because the legislation is all over the place. So part of creating a national standard is giving every citizen in the United States the same level of protection. To me, that's probably the most critical reason for doing this. We're going to make sure that every citizen in the United States has the same rights, the same level of protection. If there's a breach, a national breach, and we know which ones those are. Um, on privacy, we have three States today, California, CCPA, Nevada, and Maine. We have 15 States that are currently have legislation in some, you know, stage within the state legislative process. And then we have another States that have started the process. And the bills have died new york as an example but that's going to come back um, so we're headed down the same path on privacy that we were on data breach notification legislation and and i can't imagine if we've got 50 different pieces of privacy legislation 50 different pieces of data breach of legislation we're going to you know we're going to legislate companies into and i can tell you about one bank that spends over a million dollars a year just on tracking and making sure they continue to be compliant with all of the regulations that they have to be compliant with. And banks are are probably the biggest example of people who are over, you know, completely regulated, not over but completely regulated. So, you know, um, you know, we have a new bill that just dropped um, the uh, setting an American framework to ensure data access, transparency and accountability, the Safe Data Act, which was dropped in mid-September. you know, we've got Senator Thune, Wicker, Fisher, Blackburn, and they, they introduced that bill. Um, and, um, you know, it it won't go anywhere right now, but it's, it's another piece of legislation that we're examining it. And to, to give you an idea how thick that legislation is, (laughs) it's a big piece of legislation, which I've been, I've been delving through. Um, so, um, yeah, from a legislative standpoint, those are the two top things. We're focused on um, data breach. We're focused on privacy. But there are three other things that we're really keen to, to work on. Workforce development is another priority for us. Um, you know, there's this, again, It's a I call it a patchwork quilt of uh, cyber uh, scholarship for service programs that right. exist today. Um, we are uh, strongly endorsing the concept of a national cyber for service scholarship program that kind of embraces everything and brings it together. Um, you know, there are over 5,000 universities, colleges, community colleges in this country. Only 86 of them are certified for any kind of cyber for scholarship program. Uh, the State of Georgia, which is where I'm based, we have eight nationally NSA, nationally recognized, And Uh, we have the
0: number one school in the entire country.
1: Arguably. And I say arguably because every time I say that someone argues with me. But uh, (laughs) whether whether it's Jeff Hancock at George Washington or someone at, uh, you know, at SMU or Texas A&M, you know, there are a lot of Georgetown, a lot of good programs. Ohio State has a great program. And Helen Patton, who's the sister there, is on our on our board. So I got to make sure I I pay homage to them. but, you know, what we're saying is, look, let's, let's expand this program and let's treat it like the military. You, you get four years of college for six years of service. And there's a reason for that. And I'm, if you just give me bear with me for a second, I want to delve into this. You hear this 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 constant talk chatter about this huge shortage of cyber warriors. Right. We got this. Right. But when you look at it, you go to CyberSeek and you look at where the real gaps are. You take cybersecurity plus, which is the entry level certification, and you look at the number of people with that certification and you look at the number of jobs being advertised requiring that certification. You've got about five and a half people for every job. Now you go up the chain. You know, you go CC CCISP, uh, CISSP, uh, Certified Security Program Manager, all of those higher level certifications. I don't know if I got all the acronyms right. Uh, typically come with experience, seven to 10 years is where people start getting those higher levels, And you start looking at the jobs that are advertised for those certifications and the number of people who have those certifications, you got like 0. 0.4. So the gap is up here, not down here. So does that mean we don't need more people at the entry level? No, because over here in the federal sector, we currently have what? 40,000 jobs, they can't fill. So let's create. um, Oh, and the other thing is over 50% of the current cyber workforce is baby boomers in Generation X. So over the next decade, you're going to see this huge exodus of over half the workforce. So we need a pipeline. But how do we funnel that pipeline? So let's take people, let's give them an incentive to get into cyber by giving them three or four years of college, whatever letting them go work for the federal government, military, as civilians, whatever, and then come into the private workforce in six years, significantly more qualified to be in the private workforce. But more importantly, they have the opportunity to stay with the federal government and enjoy the benefits there. So that's something we're heavily promoting. We've got some senators very interested in in helping us do that. And I think you'll see some legislation as soon as the dust clears after the election probably February, March, we'll be dropping some legislation on that to try and drive that we've got really good support. Um, and, and as I told you, uh, John Felker, who uh, up until recently was with NISA, uh, has joined the NTSC Advisory Council specifically to help us drive that workforce agenda. Um, he's currently working with the University Systems of Georgia. He's also working with the equivalent organization in Florida. So we're excited that John's coming on board and I'll mention that uh, next week there's a fireside chat between John and Marlene Allison, who is this global ciso at Johnson and Johnson talking more about what we're trying to do on this. So if you haven't registered for that NTSC.org events calendar, you can register just a little quote there.
0: That is, that is quite okay. I think most people should register. I think John's one of the more fascinating people, um, that come out of the government, I will tell you this. So um, speaking of kind of veterans, so um, for the month of November, I'm dedicating the entire month to veterans on the podcast. Every single channel that I do a podcast on all month, I'm speaking to 26 veterans, um, highlighting their stories of transitioning from the military to civilian life. And the reason I say that is because so many veterans um, that come out of the service who may have not been cyber warriors in the service, right? They couldn't serve in cyber command, but I'm speaking to a lot of people um, and and I, and I take these calls all the time, um, Pat, where, hey, I'm getting a medical discharge. I got injured during a training or during an operation somewhere. I'm getting a medical discharge. And now, you know, I was a, you know, a 13 Bravo in the army or, you know, an 11 Alpha or, or whatever, and... Now I find myself having to think of a career a lot earlier than what I had anticipated, and I don't know where to go. And I'm thinking cyber. How do I get started?
1: Right. And, and I
0: think just... this, and, and I think this is a big miss um, in our military is these people who can't um, continue to serve in combat units, but have the drive, want to serve the country, want to do good, and end up going you know, to a two-year college or a four-year university to get their cybersecurity degree or or get cybersecurity training. Some of them do boot camps, you know, a 16-week boot camp and and they get a they get jobs and um but but there's a direct shortage and since November eleventh is Veterans Day and apparently everyone gets a full month but veterans, we get two days a year. For whatever reason, semper fi, right? Like, well, I mean, I was gonna
1: say you're not gonna you're not gonna forget November
0: tenth, are you? No. Two hundred forty-fifth
1: birthday of the United States Marine Corps.
0: Yeah, semper fi. So, um, so, so I decided that uh, I am dedicating, and I'm starting a movement um, to dedicate the entire month of November to veterans. And I'm starting with veterans in cyber, and 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 hopefully more people will join. Kind of this this movement with the idea of highlighting our veterans and what assets they can be to workforce. Um, and
1: I'll, I'll talk more about to this issue about with you offline. But there's a chap I'd like to introduce you to. His name is Ian. I think it's Camber Systems C A M B E R, but I'll look it up. Um, I was recently at the Cipher Threat Conference at Sea Island in mid September, and I met Ian. Um, former special forces chap who got lit up one night in in, uh, in Afghanistan, and I mean lit up pretty bad. Um, and uh, he's he's heavily involved in this organization that helps uh, veterans who have gone through that experience. And you know what we you know what I mean by lit up, um, you know, and who are now trying to make that transition back into the real world um after uh going through some catastrophic injuries so uh love to introduce you to him and uh, maybe you could talk to him about his experiences and, and building a company coming from that experience and in building a cyber company um you know it's it's been he, he's a delightful chap to talk to he, he I, I would love that and i would appreciate it i think um
0: um, when you talk about workforce development, and, and we t- we hear the number of shortages, right? And and I'm great that finally someone can say, um, you're you're probably one of the first guests I've had on the show. That when you know, typically people will drop and say we're missing three million jobs, and I'm like, well, Kevin Peterson, our good friend Kevin Peterson, I um, um and, and and I love Kevin. Um, Kevin and I were having a beer um, a while ago. And Kevin goes, because um, because we live not far from each other, and there's a great little uh, place in Avalon that's a, that's a German beer garden, and we typically go there and grab a grab a beer and and, and have a conversation. And Kevin um, looked at the workforce shortage numbers in cyber, and then he went back to the '70s and compared it to the nursing shortage of the 1970s. Right. And he said, "How did we solve the nursing shortage of the 1970s?" And he goes, "It wasn't hiring more nurses; it was automation." I can tell you that today in one of the socks that I work with, we don't have level one analysts. Zero level one analysts. It's all automated. It's all automated. Their entire job is automated. So when people start at security plus, and you mentioned the number of 5.5 people for one opening with a security plus requirement, it's because they're given an entryway. But they're not going beyond that. Like uh, Kurt John, who's the uh, CSO over at Siemens. Ten years ago, he started as a hacker, as, as a certified ethical hacker. Today, he is a CISO. Ten years later, right? So it's beyond security plus. It's beyond anything else. It's it's mindset, right? We're training people to get this keyboard experience. We're forgetting to teach them business. And so well, you create a gap.
1: And the other thing that that I think is really critical and I hear this from my community all the time. And when I talk about my community, I'm talking about the sisters on my board, the folks on my policy council, my advisory council, um, which you were a major part of up until this year. um, Is aptitude. Right. Does this person have the aptitude for the job? And my favorite story is um, a CISO was interviewing a chap who'd come in for a job in the SOC and he was driving a truck. This happened in Atlanta. One of my CISOs in Atlanta. He was driving a truck for Coca-Cola. And and this CISO immediately instinctively knew this guy had the aptitude for the job. And the real story was the battle with HR (laughs) to go hire a truck driver for Coca-Cola for an entry-level position in the SOC. But today, this guy is a senior analyst in that sock. Yeah. So, you know, um, it's not always the four-year degree, you know, the master's degree out at Georgia Tech, yeah. which is a great degree. But, you know, sometimes it's just the, the 18-year-old kid who, uh, who spent the last two years in the basement with, you know, the, the, you know, the, the proverbial, uh, you know, Mountain Dew cases around him. Uh, but really has the aptitude for the job, has the instincts for the job. So don't, you know, don't diss that. And when I used to go to Fort Gordon, I, I'm so sad we don't do that anymore because I think you came with us a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, we used to go uh, every eight weeks, they cycle through a class in the advanced cybersecurity program there. And it's a joint program. So it's across all branches of the service. And we would go up there every week, uh, eight weeks to the last week of the program and we would spend, uh, take three or four SISOs and we would do a, about an hour panel conversation and we do about two hours of Q&A. And you know, the questions would range. It'd be like, how much money I'm going to make when I get out of this chicken shit outfit to, uh, <laughs> you know, to how, how do you use X, Y, or Z technology? So, I mean, the questions range and typically, you know, 50 to 70 students in a class, about a third of them are getting out in the next, you know, 10 to 12 months about a third of them in the next two or three years and about a third of them are career military and they're not going to get out for a long time. So you want to focus on on that first group intensely uh, and and seed the second group. Um, but I was talking to the senior warrant officer who who was my liaison, and he talked about aptitude because they're pulling these kids into the program out of the barracks. These kids don't have cyber background, but they go through tests and and they, you know, they figure out who has the aptitude, and they throw them into this program for eight weeks. And then, if they make it through the program, then they're they're out and so back in their branch of service and being the, you know, the cyber representative, um, you know, early days. But you know, they get a chance to grow in the field.
0: Well, so cyber goes across multiple multiple different aspects. I mean, cyber is an active part of combat. We we've seen that with some of the reports that have come out with, uh, um, you know, Russia essentially having ships that are targeting you know other naval units um, with cyber, cyber warfare um, and, and, and in GPS and, 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 and signal interception and, and so many different things. I mean, we see it now that cyber is part of an active workforce. I attended a um, event between um, Israel, uh, US um, and the EU talking about cyber warfare. And kind of rules of engagement. Again, all virtual. By the way, when I say attended an event, I mean I was still sitting in sweatpants and my black t-shirt. You know, drinking my espresso in the comfort of my home in in in, in Georgia, um, which I love. By the way, and, and 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 shout out to UNG. I haven't given UNG a shout out this whole episode, but number <laughs> one school in the country, uh, uh, winning the NSA Codebreaker Challenge last year.
1: Um, you know, it's interesting. I had a I had a chance, and I, I couldn't do it because of my schedule, but. Um... One of the uh, legislative assistants for one of our congressional leaders was in in Atlanta on his way to Fort Gordon to participate in a field exercise. It was one of the first field exercises where they were going to insert a cyber uh, uh, factor into it. and, and a component into it. And, and it goes to the integrity of the data. So if I'm a tank commander and I get information that the enemy is over there and that information through cyber, you know, somehow through the cyber, uh, I forget the word I'm looking for, but you know what I mean? So some, some adversary has given me false information. The enemy is actually over there, you know, I'm pointing right and left. Um, that was the first time they, they they integrated a cyber component into the, you know, an actual field exercise, uh, intentionally to screw up the tank commanders. It was a tank exercise. I had a chance to go down and it, I didn't go, but I talked to the chap when he came back through Atlanta on his way to Washington and he said it was fascinating um, and what they learned from it. Um, and, and you know, data integrity, we had um, Dr. Kamal Jabbar, Dr. Jabbar, Dr. Jamal, um, his last name, Jamal Kabar, who's the chief scientist at the Air Force Research Lab in Rome, New York, uh, came and spoke to us one time and his real focus entirely was on, you know, focusing on data integrity. And we did it at United Airlines and Emily Heath, who was assistant at United at the time who subsequently moved to DocuSign. Emily talked about load load bearing data, you know, how concerned they are, that if an adversary were somehow were to come in and manipulate the data that talks about, you know, the weight and the fuel components on an airplane, because uh, right, the vast majority of, of, of the weight in an airplane is cargo, As most people don't realize that's where they make all their money, they don't make their money on passengers they make their money on cargo. Uh, so they've got to get the fuel component right. But if you want to screw up a plane, screw with the integrity of that fuel data. Um, and so that's one of the biggest security concerns for, for for all the CISOs in the airline industry. So data integrity is so important today, James, I mean, all of these things that are swirling around. Um, it, it's really interesting. Uh, when you talk to CISOs about it. Um, the last two, I'm just going to quickly mention the last two uh, priorities for the NTSE, uh, And I think these will remain consistent next year. Uh, the last two are critical infrastructure, and we're still kind of sorting through that. We've got a program on November 10th talking about operational technology, industrial control systems, and how do you prevent cyber attacks on those? And then, um, you know, we've got the uh, the global head of uh, of, of the program that, that focuses on that at Checkpoint, uh, speaking along with uh, a senior director from uh, CISA on November 10th. And then um, you know, so so that's important. And then we're looking at what, what the Solarium Commission recommended in terms of systemically important critical infrastructure and and how they're going to get more information and more insight than other folks. And we're talking to Mark Montgomery about what that really means and how that, you know, how that's gonna work out. So so that's something that's developing for us. We're still kind of You know got our toes in the water but our community thinks that's critically important they voted on that last year and then finally um continuing to you know strengthen the public-private dialogue continuing to work with sisa and chris krebs and his team and working with the ftc and staying on the hill and educating our legislators those are those are our five priorities
0: I will tell you this, you guys, uh, the NTC, and and you've done an amazing job of building that private-public partnership between CISOs and the federal government, especially CISA, before CISA was CISA supporting the bill to actually give them a cyber in the name, because before that they had a really weird name. I forgot what it was, but it had, what was it?
1: The National Protections and. It was like,
0: it had multiple P's in it. I remember it had like multiple P's.
1: National protections and something directorate.
0: Yeah, it was. It was. I, I will say that if you're a CISO and you're listening and um, you want to build that trust, um, uh, the NTSC is the way to go because you guys, you, you've done the, you've done the work. You've built that trust. It's been flying to DC and meeting with them and bringing SISOs and having them sit in the same room um, and having that conversation. Um, th- that doesn't come easy. Uh, and, and a lot of people are very suspicious of giving the government any sort of insight because they're afraid of the repercussions that come from it and that, and in cyber in cyber, it's so critical for uh, corporations and government to work together on security because when you're you know the NSA um, yesterday issued the 25 most critical vulnerabilities that China uses, the Communist Party of China's hackers use against organizations and i reported on it on today's practitioner brief in the morning and if if i tell you um that some of these are from 2015 would you believe me
1: no i would yeah so we have
0: we have cves here that were issued in 2015 2018 2017 um you know and and you're starting to realize that our biggest challenge in security today will Uh, um, is going to be patch management and vulnerability management because that's where we're seeing it's not the technology, right? We have great cybersecurity vendors out there. Uh, You've mentioned a few where, you know, they're able to give you the technology to support your program. But where we're really lacking is the idea of coming into patch management and vulnerability management on, on some of these critical zero days. And... When they're being exploited actively, it's very hard for a lot of organizations to fathom that happening, right? And, 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 and earlier you said something around compliance, you know, if you're compliant, you're secure. Uh, generally speaking, yes, but I don't support that fully because a lot of people will do the bare, bare, very bare basics of compliance, which gives you a sense of security, but doesn't really give you security. Um defense and depth is needed. Um our our buddy Vladimir, uh we gotta say hi to Vladimir. Um hey, Vladimir. hey Vlad. Um so so um you know um Vladimir obviously talks a lot about the CIS top twenty. And he goes, if you do the top nine right, you've pretty much got a compliant and a good security program in place with a very strong foundation. But you gotta do the top nine. Um
1: we, we would also be a miss if we didn't say Semper Fi to Vladimir.
0: We did not. Yeah. We got to say Semper Fi to Vladimir. You know, I got, I got, um, I, I got a lovely email yesterday from Vladimir and, and and he's just such a wealth of knowledge and just an amazing, amazing person. Um, I got to, I got to make sure to give him an honorable mention on this podcast.
1: Another source of, of insight and that I would highly recommend people read is the Homeland threat assessment, which comes out every month. It's not a terribly thick document. But if you read the, uh, the uh, forward, um, I was reading it earlier, and and fundamentally, um, you know, what it says is um, that um, let me see if I can find this. yeah. You know, well. Anyway, I, I suggest you read it, and and it what it basically says is this stuff is not going to stop, whether it's Russia,
0: China, China,
1: Iran, North Korea. Korea yeah. You know, Iran, uh, state actors um, and non-state actors who are sponsored by state actors. The number of uh, sponsored actors by North Korea, for example, is just it's just out. You know, it it boggles the mind. Uh, and these people are actually working on quota systems. You know, they have to produce so much money every month, or, or you know, they're not meeting their quota. And if you don't, it's not like uh, and if you don't meet your quota, you don't get to go and say, "Listen, boss, next month, this is a North
0: Korean dictator. This guy I think yeah. killed his own uncle. Um, he's not right. going to have a problem off in here."
1: It's not like working for a U.S. sales organization, which, worst case scenario, is you're going to get put on probation or fired. In North Korea, you're probably going to get a whole lot more damage done to you if you don't meet your your your, uh, your quota, and so they are highly incented to meet their quotas. And um, and you know, I mean, I don't want to be cliched, but you know, it it is as Vladimir often says, you know, I'm only uh, one patch away from losing a job. You know, um, it, it's it's challenging when you've got to get everything right. And they only have to get it right one time and you got to get it right every single day every single day and you got to get up in the morning and often make decisions based on risk because you have a defined budget i mean not everybody is bank of america not everybody is jp morgan chase with very large budgets i mean i've heard uh bank of america doesn't actually have a number on the budget they're going to spend whatever it takes to defend their consumers uh, and I suspect it's very similar to JP Morgan Chase. Um, but for a lot of people, that's not the reality. So I've got X number of dollars and I got to make decisions um, about what I'm gonna defend against. Um, I, I encourage people to read the Solarium Commission report. Um, I, I, it's a big report when you first look at it, break it down into the six pillars and, and, and take each pillar and digest it one at a time, spend a week on a pillar. Say I'm gonna read the report over the next six months, two months, I'm sorry, two months, six pillars over two months. And it gives you slightly over a week to read each one. But what he calls for is a, a whole of nation approach to defense. It's, you know, let's stop. And I had this conversation with the CEO of an ISAC recently You know, I think that the ISACs are really good at communicating within their funnel. Uh, They're getting better at communicating across, but there's still work to be done. But in general, cyber people are not very good at sharing information. (laughs) Within the ISACs, they're pretty good. But across the ISACs and across, you know, they're getting better. And that's the good news. But we need to have... Um, the ability to make sure everybody has the same information at the same time. If you're, if you're seeing something that I should see, I need to know that in real time. It's got to be real time. It's got to be contextual. We got to get a lot better at threat intelligence. Um, you know, we, 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 when John Felker ran the in we talked a lot about that with John. Um, it's getting better, but there's a lot of room for improvement on threat intelligence across okay. the patch
0: there is i think there's a lot of noise around threat intelligence and for a lot of sisters the difficulty is um do you build your own threat intel team do you use several outside vendors and then um what differentiates different vendors i mean i don't know when was the last time you heard a threat intel sales pitch pat but they all pretty much sound the same um there's a really funny episode of entourage where vince decides to leave ari gold and he goes to meet with all the other agents in LA, right? And all yeah. of them give him the same exact presentation. McDonald's, Mercedes-Benz, Vincent Chase, Burger King, you know, BMW, Vincent Chase, right? And you go like, I don't know how any of you are different. And, and I think the challenge is we don't have a real clear differentiator today in threat intelligence unless you build your own program. And if you don't have the budget to build your own program, you end up in a you end up in a in, in, in a slew of challenges.
1: Yeah, and and I you know I I I think there you know the Threat Intelligence Alliance there are some some programs that are out there that are good, uh, and then there are companies you know like CrowdStrike who, who who see everything that they own as proprietary, so they're not going to be part of the Threat Intelligence Alliance, um, or Cyber Threat Alliance, whatever it's called. Um, I think Rick Howard was instrumental, Palo Alto was instrumental in setting that up. Um, There are other companies like Cyware who who I think do a good job. Uh, There are a lot of companies out there that um, are are pushing and getting better and better. But, um, you know, to your point, um, it's hard when you've got all that noise in the marketplace it's hard to distinguish the single from the noise and to figure out who truly differentiates themselves. Um, And I have CISOs who, to to your point, have built their own, you know, systems, and they're quite happy with it. And and it works well for them. Um, But uh, if we're going to have a whole of nation perspective on defense, then we have to figure out how we get everybody the same information at the same time, so that we are all protected. And, and that's a huge challenge going into the next few years. And, you know, automation orchestration could certainly help with that. You know, we did some work with Kim Watson at the Applied Research Lab at Johns Hopkins University. She runs the program there, uh, which I've completely forgot, uh, integrated something, um, defense program, but it's all about orchestration automation. Uh, and we could circle back to your point earlier. It may be that you know, all of our cyber workforce shortages disappear in five years because of AI. Well,
0: I don't think it'll disappear. I think you're still going to see that mid-management role still exist. And in five years, we'll have people with five years of experience ready to go into that mid-manager role. Um, right now, we don't have enough people. Um, you know, there's a really funny joke. I did a I did a podcast um, several weeks ago, and um, one of the um, one of the slides. It was a LinkedIn Live session that I did. And it was um, a company that said, we're looking for someone with Kubernetes experience, uh, but you got to have minimum 12 years of experience in Kubernetes. Well, the founder of right. Kubernetes applied for the job and they declined them. They said, you don't have enough experience. And he goes, I invented Kubernetes eight years ago, lady. You can't have anyone with 12 years of experience. It's only eight years old.
1: Right. Yeah, I I, I think I actually saw that on a LinkedIn post that you did, and and, and I had to laugh about that. Hey, James, uh, I don't know how much time we had left. Well, we're time.
0: almost out of time. So I want to ask you this. Um, two, two, two things, and then I'm going to put you on the hot seat real quick. Um, okay. So um, any openings for CISOs on the council at the moment, or are you fully fully booked?
1: No, we are actually, this is the time of year we're actually in the process of going through our, our growth period. Uh, we're about to announce that Meredith Harper, the CISO at Eli Lilly, is joining our board. And that Michael Palmer, who is a former CISO at the NFL, is now the CISO at Hearst Corporation, is joining our board. And there's another six CISOs in the queue that we're talking to. But um, you know, our, our 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 objective is to have sixty CISOs on our board. Um, you know, we're going to go through a certain amount of churn every year because some CISOs just you know leave their jobs. You know, and 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 you know. Pete Cronus left Warner media and took a sabbatical. So he left the board, right. Um, and, uh, Elizabeth Joyce left HPE, went to state street. So she left the board. Um, uh, but we think she'll come back. Um, uh, so we have a certain amount of churn, but right now we're, we're definitely, uh, open to, uh, to talking to chief information security officers from fortune 1000 companies that are not on the seller side, exclusively on the buyer side. And, um, so, yeah, if, if you're interested, Patrick Gall, Patrick at NTSC.org is my email.
0: I'll have Patrick's information in the description below. I'll, have, um, I'll put your LinkedIn profile. I won't put your email because um, I don't want the Chinese and the Russians to start spamming you. Um, okay. um, I'll put your LinkedIn. That way you have some control. Um, of it but i'm gonna put you on the hot seat so this is the, the best part of the podcast you get to go on the hot seat with everyone it's our Arciso insight round and it's where um, i get to ask you six questions you get to answer them very fast you're on the hot seat pat so
1: before we start can i just add one other thing to what absolutely I said? um for those folks who don't have the bandwidth to be on the board. And I get that not everybody has the bandwidth to serve on the board. Not everybody wants to pay the board fee. Um, We are launching a new member program at the beginning of next year, that will um, offer a number of benefits, which I'm happy to share with you, uh, again, the same way. But if you're interested in knowing about that program, it's, uh, it will give you the legislative updates, it'll give you a chance to add your voice to our voice when we go to the Hill it'll give you discounts, significant discounts to our regional and national events when we start going live. Again, hopefully sometime in the second half of next year. Um, so we're going to launch that program in January, uh, we're going to offer a discount to anybody who signs up before January. So I'll, you'll look for that uh, to come out on LinkedIn and some other places in the next uh, few weeks.
0: Once you get that and you launch the program, just uh, send it over to me. I'll post it to all of our listeners, and I'll mention it in one of our next podcasts.
1: Thank you, James. Now I'm ready right. for my six
0: questions. Are, are you ready? Are you ready? Okay. So um, I have a buzzword graveyard. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's really famous among Um, You know, my backyard's the woods, so I've got a hidden, I've hidden graveyard of buzzwords. What's one buzzword you'd get rid of? What's what? One buzzword you would get rid of. Bury, destroy, eliminate
1: one buzzword that I would get rid of gosh um, there are so many buzzwords um shit <laughs> sorry <laughs> I't mind to go completely blank but a question um uh what's a buzzword
0: Um, i i I can throw you a bones you can can be zero trust it can be ai it can be machine learning it can be all kinds of uh fun buzzwords we've had some pretty creative uh, ones you know um
1: yeah I, i i guess um Yeah, uh, yeah, something along the lines of active cyber defense. People talk about active cyber defense all the time. And and I, and I don't know what they mean. And 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 typically they don't know what they mean. Um, so um, that would be my buzz phrase. That,
0: the buzzword, active cyber defense has never been in our graveyard, just so you know. You've just okay. forced me to dig a new six-foot grave and bury a new word. So um, thank you for the workout. I really do appreciate it. Active cyber defense, buried um, what's one technology that you feel is going to change the way cybersecurity is managed in the future?
1: Uh, artificial intelligence, without a doubt,
0: AI. Um, what's the book you're reading right now or the last book you read?
1: Last book I read was The Fifth Domain by Richard Clark, okay. um, which I which I uh, would highly recommend to everybody to read. But, you know, with me, James, I'm if I'm not reading pieces of legislation that thick or the solarium commission. A lot of, a lot of what I'm reading is, is, uh, is really work related. But when I, uh, I have David Sanger's new book uh, sitting on my shelf, ready ready to take that down. But um, yeah, Fifth Domain was the last book I read and I, I had a chance to have dinner with Richard Clark and he asked me questions about the book and you know how I read a book and mark it up. And I was actually able to quote Bible and, you know, chapter and verse to him. So I got credit for that.
0: Brilliant. Uh, What's the last movie you saw? The last movie you saw.
1: The last movie I saw was the one about Ruth. uh, R B G. Yeah, yeah, R B G. the the one that just came out on I think it was Netflix. I watched it with my wife uh, last weekend before I came to North Carolina.
0: Brilliant. I thought it was
1: brilliant. Uh, She's such a fascinating lady.
0: She is. Um, whether you agree with her politics or not, you have yeah, to yeah. appreciate the woman. You have to appreciate the woman. She was phenomenal.
1: Yeah. Forget, forget where she leaned right or left, just, just about her journey. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think about if
0: people it, paid more attention to the journey, you would you would dismiss a little bit of your bias towards politics. But unfortunately that's not the case. What's your favorite music? What do you listen to on a every single day?
1: Or, you know, I I did a thing with Roy Hadley recently uh, in part of the program. He's doing a tag and he asked me the same question. And, and I, and I, you know, I'm, I'm a big vinyl guy. Uh, I love, uh, I have a top end turntable and system. So uh, when I'm feeling kind of uh, in the, in the mood for something, I it's kind of blue by miles Davis is, is, is my go-to album. It just allows me to sit back and relax and get lost in what, what I think is one of the most complex pieces of music. I have to say, however, you know, um, Rolling Stone came out with their top 500. And, and while I think, um, you know, Marvin Gaye and um, Let's Get It On It, you know, that whole album was brilliant. Uh, I can't believe they put it above Pet Sounds. Pet Sounds was number two, but I'd flip those.
0: Yeah, there's a uh, music is like food, right? There's a debate over what's better, um, but, but you, with, with taste and smell, there's no arguing. Those palettes are different for each person.
1: Yeah. I have a 24 year old who's like a walking encyclopedia <laughs> when it comes to music. And he, he, uh, he's, he's decided he's never reading another Rolling Stone again after those 500, you know? yeah. but, um, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a jazz guy, put Chet Baker on, put Miles Davis on, um, you know, uh, those, those are the kind of people I like to listen to when I really want to just veg out.
0: And the final question on the hot seat is, what's one thing you took away from the COVID-19 crisis?
1: How real it is. Um, both my wife and my 24-year-old son I just mentioned both had COVID. Um, my wife was, was moderately ill. My son was very ill. Uh, Ended up in the hospital, ended up on an inhaler, steroids, uh, heavy respiratory infection. Um, Took my son a good, you know, eight, 10 weeks to to fully recover. Took my wife a good six weeks to to, kind of get past the fatigue part of it. Um, And, um, you know, for those people who are anti-maskers, fair enough. You believe what you want to believe. But, uh, you know, my daughter and I, who's 22, wore masks the whole time we were in the house. Anytime we were around the two of them, I'm 70 years old. I didn't get it and she didn't get it. So, you know, maybe we were just lucky or maybe we practiced. And, and uh, please wash your hands, <laughs> you know, yeah. every wash, wash
0: your hands, um, practice good hygiene. Um, if you're outdoors and you're walking all by yourself, you probably don't need a mask. But if you're around other people. Whether you like it or not, just put on a mask because even if you don't want it, protect others, you don't know who the person across from you is going to be seeing after they see you and how they could be impacted by your decisions.
1: It's just a common courtesy. I mean, you know, um, it, it is, it, as I say, it's just common courtesy. Uh, well, so we've we got our seat belts in our car, you know, put a mask on. Well, anyway, um, so
0: we are all wrapped up. Patrick, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate Jane, it. Thank you
1: for inviting me. I, I always enjoy chatting with you. It's always a great conversation. Uh, I, I am, as I said before we started, I admire you and what you've done in the last few years to build your brand, and uh, I wish you continued success, brother.
0: Thank you so much. Folks, Patrick Gall, ntsc.org. If you're a CISO and you're looking for a place to belong, a place where you can get your voice heard, Patrick and, and the community that he's built there, Is absolutely the place to go. Um, That's it for us here today. We'll be back with another CISO Talk next week. Until then, folks, on behalf of myself, on behalf of Patrick Gall, we want to wish you all to stay very, very healthy, mask up, practice safe social distancing, go out and vote because your vote does matter. Your vote does matter. It makes Patrick's life much easier when you vote for people and you ask your voted officials. I've asked every single one, what are you doing about cyber? What do you know about cyber? Let's get the right people in place who can actually support our agenda on the Hill. And with that being said, stay cyber safe.